from the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Well, we are two days away from 2020. Yes. Exciting. I can't help but think when I think of 2020... Zooms me back. I can't believe it's been 20 years since, remember the whole Y2K Yeah, scare? I wonder if some of our listeners are too young to even know about what we experienced at the end uh, yeah, of the you know, 20th century. If there are century. some teenage listeners out there, or <laughs> even if some in their early 20s, yeah. you probably don't remember. Yeah. Yeah, well, you wouldn't if you're a teenager, obviously. Yeah. You didn't go through it. But if even if you're in your early 20s, you probably don't remember what the rest of the world went through 20 years ago. Yeah. When everybody was afraid that the computers uh, were going to all shut down when it clicked over to zero, zero. And uh, gosh, there were TV movies about planes going down and this fear in the culture and people were stocking up on food and flashlights and some were buying houses off the grid and everybody thought the world was going to come to an end. And Yeah, that. It does cause some anxiety when you're hearing these things a lot and seeing people who take it seriously. You don't know what to make of all that. Yeah. I, I, I was that. trying to remember this, Wendy. We were living in Denver, mm-hmm. and I was trying not to get caught up in any of the friends. This is ridiculous. I'm not getting caught up. But then, like two weeks out, I was like, well, I guess it can't hurt to have a little extra water and maybe some canned soup just in case <laughs> something happens. Yeah. <laughs> so I bought some stuff and put it in the garage, and I don't know how long it took us to use all the canned soup I got. <laughs> But of course, nothing happened. We're still here. But it does, I think it points to some strange but understandable fascination we have with global catastrophe, mm-hmm. end of the world, apocalyptic mm-hmm. stuff. And yeah, there will come a time when it is the end of the world. And Christ talks about, you know, he's concerned for the nursing mothers and pregnant women at that time because it's going to be cataclysmic and. Yeah, that can stir all kinds of questions and fears, but the underlying message, it's right there also in the gospel after Jesus, you know, kind of pronounces those dire warnings. He says, but when that happens, hold your head high for the kingdom is at hand. Mm. Be not afraid. If we focus too much on, on that end of the world stuff, we can just drive ourselves batty. It's all in God's hands. And If we're entering in day after day, as life teaches us, inevitably, if we let life teach us, it will inevitably lead us to the cross. And if we are living out that mystery in our days, learning how to accept and embrace the cross as the way to the glory that we desire, then I don't think we're going to be caught off guard by even those kind of large I don't know. What the heck do I know? If I saw the sun falling from the sky and the end of the world was coming, I might crap my pants. Who, who knows? You know, what's my faith going to do for me right in that moment? I hope a lot, but I'm human too. And yeah, I want to believe I wouldn't, I'd still be, yes, Lord, I believe, I trust, I trust, but who knows? Who knows? I don't want to make judgments about it. Anyway, we're all human. We're all in the same boat. We're all in God's hands too. Let's yeah. hold all that together and yeah. somehow we'll get through. <laughs> who is Who is this Lord that we love and serve and trust. It's merciful, loving God. I just got myself caught up in a little frenzy there, <laughs> thinking about that. <laughs> that was 20 years ago, Y2K. 
<laughs> anyway, that's not what I want to talk about today. Just a little banter before we get to our questions. Let's go right to our questions. <laughs> well, we have an interesting question to start with today. An anonymous listener asks, are there any moral norms regarding how often spouses should engage in marital relations? Yes. If you turn to page 325 <laughs> of your typical text, you will find the admonition that spouses should have sex an average of 3.2 times a week. It's right there in the book of... I think you're joking with us right now. Yes, I am. <laughs> the question goes on to say, is there a too often or a not often enough? So that's the full anonymous question. Oh my gosh. Yes, bless you, dear anonymous questioner. How do we even begin an answer to that other than to say every couple is, is unique? Mm-hmm. So moral norms, no, not in sense, not in the sense of assigning numbers. Uh, the moral norm is love your wife as Christ loved the church, and wives learn how to receive that love and return that love. That's the moral norm. Love one another as I have loved you, and love might demand years of abstinence. Mm. That's what love might demand. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe your spouse is in a major car accident and the recovery takes years. That's going to demand years of abstinence. That's what love demands. Maybe there are times when uh, love demands intercourse on a very regular basis because you're, you're lovingly desiring to have a child and it's the fertile time and you're several days in a row because you really lovingly are mm-hmm. eager to have another child. Maybe that's what love will demand in that situation, but it's very hard to, to try to map out what that means in any general sense because it's going to be so specific to each couple. Yeah, I think we ha- maybe even have an instinctive sense of just the intimacy of the couple being something we shouldn't violate yeah. in this way. And and sometimes when I've encountered maybe an attitude of wanting to, I don't know, kind of judge people for the spacing of their children, um, which, of course, there's a whole, you know, unknown to the outside, outside of that marriage, all the factors that are affecting when they are not or are not having babies. It feels to me like it steps right into that zone of judging anybody for when they do or do not um, have marital relations. Like, yeah. that's not your space. Yeah. You know, I remember feeling that same thing when I, I saw advertised, uh, I don't even remember where I was. Maybe I was in some city traveling and somebody gave me a flyer. I saw a flyer somewhere. Some evangelical church was, oh, it was a billboard. I remember it was a billboard that was promoting this seminar at an evangelical church somewhere in the south and it was it was a basically a trying to give a biblical presentation of of sex which I commend obviously that's what I like to do give a biblical presentation of God's plan for making us male and female but they were advocating like for the next 6 months we want Every married couple in our church to have sex at least five times a week. Oh my goodness! And and I whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, okay, um, but how can you? How can you? Don't you? It's not a cookie cutter no. pattern. What? If, what if someone's ill? What if? 
clearly there's probably a contraceptive mentality going on there. If you think you can just invite everyone in your congregation to have sex five times a week, maybe they need to abstain to avoid a child right now because of someone's out of work or, or whatever the situation might be. So anyway, the point is you can't make a broad statement like that because every couple will be different because of a myriad of different circumstances. The asking of the question may be in part trying to resolve a disagreement or address a concern within a specific marriage about learning to have this balance. And I remember, you know, we've had many times of looking for that balance in our relationship. Certainly. We're not, it's not like because we love each other that there are no questions to be answered in that regard. But I think, you know, the real answer is, morally speaking, it's not a question of an objective reality. It's a question of a real communication and trying to understand one another's hearts. And I remember thinking as at one point when we were discussing some of this that it's possible even Adam and Eve before the fall had to have such conversations. Sure. It's Without communication, we can't know one another, I guess, and we can't love one another if we don't know one another. There's some, isn't it funny? There's something in us that would like the other person to know exactly what I desire, think, and feel without having to say it yes. or communicate it. Right. But we have <laughs> we have learned the hard way how we, we need to communicate with one another, yeah. and especially communicating about something like this is not always easy. Mm-hmm. It, takes vulnerability yeah. and that's scary mm-hmm. and on that note I want to, I'd love to share a reflection I stumbled upon a series of videos from my mentor and former professor Monsignor Lorenzo Albacetti he died in 2014 but what a treasure I found in these videos that were just recently posted online a series he did on the catechism in 1994 and uh, I will get the link to put in the show notes here for this series of videos, if anybody's interested. Anyway, in there, he talks about why we resist love. And he says, love makes us vulnerable. Mm -hmm. This is why we don't like it, because we can be hurt so badly. And then he he just illuminated something for me that I hadn't really put together. He said, if God is infinite love, then he's also infinite love vulnerability. We tend to think of God as this all-powerful, and he is, obviously, he's all-powerful, but he's in his all-powerfulness. It's the all-powerfulness of love, and the all-powerfulness of love also makes him all-vulnerable, infinitely vulnerable. This Mm -hmm. is what we witness in the crib the birth of Christ in the crib, so to speak, and on the cross. Mm -hmm. The vulnerability of God. Uh, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. That means making yourself vulnerable. And again, just speaking from experience here on this question, 24 years of married life and you and I learning how to love and honor one another in our differences, Mm -hmm. um, that makes us vulnerable. And expressing desires makes us vulnerable vulnerable. And I'll I'll close with this thought. Maybe we'll go on to another question. But John Paul II said, he's reflecting, this is in the theology of the body. He's reflecting on St. Paul's teaching 
for husbands and wives. Don't deprive one another, but for a time, St. Paul says, don't deprive one another of the marital embrace, but for a time to devote yourself to prayer, then come back together. So there's a rhythm here mm-hmm. of coming together and then not coming together. And John Paul II says, there's something here, there's great pastoral wisdom here in inviting spouses to recognize the subjective difference of one another in their desire for the marital union. And that's a journey. And sometimes out of love, maybe one or the other spouse needs to abstain to honor the difference of the other. Sometimes out of love, maybe one or the other spouse may not be naturally desiring to come together, but out of love will come together with his or her spouse because that's an offering of love. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a give and take here, a certain dance in that coming to agreement. And Paul hints at that, and John Paul II unfolds it with, with real profundity, I would say. And we can see a, a, an analogy even in, in the Christian life of feasting and fasting. You know, if you never feast, you never fast. And if you never fast, you never feast. You need both to have both. Mm -hmm. There's a rhythm there. If you're coming together in your marital union too frequently, you're missing out on the graces of fasting. Mm -hmm. And if you're always fasting, you're missing out on the graces of coming together. Now, there may be external circumstances that make it impossible ever to come together again. Who knows what that might be? But, um, yeah, in a general sense, husbands and wives should be looking for that proper rhythm of feasting and fasting. Hope that's helpful. Yes. I have a question here from a listener named Anne who has a very difficult situation in her family. She says, yesterday I was informed by my son and my daughter-in-law that my daughter-in-law's father has begun the process to change his sex. He's on hormone therapy and Mm. will in the near future have sex reassignment surgery to, quote, become a woman. My daughter-in-law is not thrilled with this, but has expressed that she just wants her father to be happy. He has struggled with depression all his life. My heart is so heavy, it hurts. I hurt for my son. I hurt for my daughter-in-law. I hurt for her father. I hurt for his wife. I hurt for my future grandchildren. How do I react when I see him for the first time as a, quote, woman? I long for him to find his identity in Christ. Please shine light on this. Mm. Mm. Lord, please shine your light on this and help Wendy and me to reflect your light in answer to this question. It's so delicate, so tender. Mm-hmm. I would invite you, Anne, to, uh, there's just not enough time for us to give a thorough response, but I I do go into some of these very delicate questions in the chapter on gender identity questions in my book, Good News About Sex and Marriage. Now, you'll have to get the, the new edition because when I first wrote that book 20 years ago, this wasn't even an issue being discussed much at all in the culture. The last 20 years, we've just seen this issue come right to the fore of the culture. So I I did a new edition of the book in 2018. So I just share that because some people might go grab their old copy off their shelf and not see those questions in there. 
It's only in the 2018 edition. But here's some initial thoughts. And I, I want to zoom in on that specific question, Anne, that you asked. How do I react when I see him, quote, as a woman now? And I, I, I'm having just a, a, a sense, uh, an image in my own mind and heart as I think about this of how Christ reacted to the woman caught in adultery, of how Christ reacted to Zacchaeus, the tax collector, of how Christ reacted to that, quote, sinful woman who cried at his feet. He looked with love. He looked with love. And there's that scene in the gospel that speaks so deeply to me. That woman is crying at his feet. Jesus is in the house of the Pharisee. Uh, Simon the Pharisee. And the scripture says, Jesus was looking right at the woman, but he's talking to Simon. And he says, and remember Simon was like, if he were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. You know, and let's just change that scenario. If, if he were a prophet, he would know that this woman used to be a man, was born a man and had sex reassignment surgery. And, you know, just to, to make it applicable to this situation. And what does Jesus say? He says, he's looking at the woman. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? So, Anne, here's the invitation. The invitation, even though he's, this man's going to go through what is really, what amounts to bodily mutilation to disguise himself as a woman, when he's really a man, God made him to be a man, and no surgery can change that fact. Can you still see him? Can you see his pain? Can you see his years of depression? Can you see that this is a misguided but understandable attempt to deal with the pain of those years and years of depression. Can you see him there and love him there? That is the invitation. That's the invitation Christ holds out to us. You know, on a practical level, questions arise. Do you call him by this new name? I assume he's going to take a new name, a woman's name. Do you refer to him as her? Those are questions I get into in that chapter of the book and there are occasions, I tell the story in, in my book of a, a Christian counselor I know who opened his doors to homeless people and had a, a kind of home for the homeless. And one day a man who was clearly a man but was trying to identify as a woman came to his shelter and signed in with a, a woman's name, let's just say Betty. And he knew that he was not Betty. But the first thing out of his mouth was not, oh, come on, everybody knows you're a man. What's your real name? Out of reverence for the mystery of this person's suffering, he referred to her as Betty and got to know her, actually him, as Betty. And over time, was able to get to know the person and ask deeper questions and there's a long story that unfolded where this person stopped wearing the makeup, stopped calling himself Betty and returned to 
his original name, but it was a long-suffering journey that this man was willing to go on with this other man. And I would invite you just to ask yourself, what might that kind of long-suffering journey look like? A journey that does not compromise the truth, that does not pretend that things are kosher and fine when they're not, but that also accepts where that person is and is willing to go on that journey with the person towards the truth. Wendy, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, I I know this is such a hard thing to face, and we are full of compassion for everyone involved. And it was kind of striking you and me both in the question about his years of depression. We We certainly have experience of knowing people who have suffered years of depression, maybe not with the same thought of how to overcome it, but certainly that is a very, very difficult life. And we do have such compassion for that. And that I, I sense it struck both of us. And I think it strikes Anne and especially her daughter-in-law having known her father all this time. Um, so I, I was struck also by Anne's multiple sentences where she used I hurt mm. over and mm. over again. And I, I just sensed the Lord in your heart in all of that hurt. You know, I hurt for all these different people, yourself included. And uh, that intense suffering that is part of this story, I just pray that it can be really opened up to the Lord in prayer. And there is no easy answer to that suffering. Um, but that if the Lord can be invited in, and even if if you might have a sense that the Lord himself is suffering in you, that that hurt you're sensing is, is part of your closeness to the Lord and his true desire, as you said, for identity, for true identity for this man. I do believe that it's a fruitful, prayerful, meaningful suffering as much as we don't want to bear it. And we want our yeah. lives to be different and other people's lives to be different in this world You'll have suffering, and this is a serious suffering. And it's a suffering with a ripple effect on the whole family and you know, children. And what, what do we do there? It's so complex and difficult. And I, I'll just tell a story here on myself, a mistake that I made, because I'm inspired hearing you, Wendy, say to open that suffering up. Mm -hmm. And here's a story of what can happen when we don't op open that suffering up. You know, in the work that I do, I, I run into this regularly, questions like this regularly, situations in families like this regularly, and in a raising our own children. And, and how do you present this to children? How do you unfold for your children that some men want to be women and some women want to be men and sometimes they get surgeries to make themselves look like the opposite sex? I mean, it's, it makes parenting very difficult. Mm -hmm. And I know that causes me suffering. Yeah. And I don't like that suffering. And there are places where I've suffered there that I haven't opened that suffering up. And I get bitter. Mm -hmm. And I get peeved at the people who are making my life so difficult. Can't you just realize what God's plan is? Rah, rah, rah. Mm. And, and there is a conversation in my extended family in which something like that, I blurted something out like that. The topic came up. 
And in my frustration, in my pain, in not processing that pain with the Lord, and in that kind of bitterness that these people who just don't understand how God really made us are making my life difficult, I blurted out some comment that was, it was a truthful statement. I said it was something like, why can't we just learn to, to understand the way God made our genitals? That's, that's where the meaning of gender is revealed in our genitals. It's a true statement, but the way I said it came with an edge and a pain in there. There was someone present in the room that I really offended. Mm-hmm. And I, I get why I offended that person because I was coming at it with an edge and a bitterness and a resentment. I was like, it was basically the underlying thing was people who struggle with this make me struggle and I don't want to struggle. So why don't they just not struggle with it? <laughs> so they don't have to make it. It's an unwillingness to love is what it really is. It's an unwillingness to suffer with others in their suffering. And that's what love calls us to do. And when we don't want to do that, we cause other people suffering. And I caused someone that I care for suffering in that kind of flippant comment. So without compromising what is true, we need to learn really how to process our own suffering and stand on the truth, but but not communicate that truth in, in a flippant mm-hmm. way. And just be aware how deep these issues go for people. Find a sensitivity that is not compromising what is true. How do we do that? Gosh, I, I think of, of Jesus again with the woman caught in adultery, where he's very clear on what is true, that what she did is wrong, go and sin no more. But I also imagine there's that line in the gospel where it says, Jesus was alone with the woman. And I imagine that encounter, what happened in that moment? I'm sure it was more than a moment. Jesus was alone with the woman. What kind of gaze did she receive from the Lord in her brokenness? And when we receive that gaze of love in our brokenness, Jesus can say, go and sin no more. And her response is not, who is this man to tell me what I can and cannot do with my body? No, she's just received. She just received the love that she had been looking for in a very disordered way in that adulterous encounter. She now received it from the bridegroom, Jesus that changes lives, that changes hearts. This man in your family, Anne, is looking for that gaze of love. And maybe you, Anne, are called to be the one who learns through your own suffering and opening that suffering to the Lord. Maybe you're called to be the one to know how to give him that gaze of love, knowing full well how broken he is. But to give him in his brokenness that gaze of love, that changes lives. Mm. Another question then um, from a listener named Tim. Tim asks, we've been running into resistance when trying to teach and promote TOB at our parish. Is this typical? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, next question. (laughs) Uh, Yes, Tim, it is typical. Why? Because You're proclaiming the gospel, and the gospel involves the cross. And people, even Christians, even people in your parish, people in the church, myself included, we resist the cross. We resist dying. We don't like that. I don't like it. 
I do not like it. Just recently, Wendy, I was saying to you, I was in a hotel somewhere. I was in Mexico City. I remember the conversation. It was a couple months ago. I was on a pilgrimage in Mexico City, and uh, I was talking to you on the phone. I don't know mm-hmm. if you remember this. Yes, absolutely. And I was just confronted with crap in my life that I needed to look at that brought me to right to the cross. And I was seeing clearly that I needed to die inside, and I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it. I want the glory on the other side. I love that resurrection stuff. I love that glory stuff. I love that new life stuff. But I don't like the way to get the new life. Because it involves, not just involves, it passes by way of. There's no way around it. It passes by way of the cross. Do you remember what you said to me, Wendy? No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you said. <laughs> tell me, tell me. <laughs> I, was, I was in that place of just, I don't like... I want I want the I want the truth of the of the resurrection but I I want to get there but I don't like the way to get there and you said well neither did Jesus. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I was like you're right. Neither did Jesus. He's it's right there in the garden. He says, "Father, let this cup pass from me." He's sweating blood cuz he doesn't want to go there. You know, something in his humanity did not want to go there. But in the end, he said, not my will, yours be done. So he had to work through that resistance in his humanity to get to the place of saying yes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so Tim, you are going to run in to that resistance. And if you can learn how to see those people are going through their own agony in the garden, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, in their resistance to the cross and learn how to, to pray for them there, not get it bitter towards them, not get argumentative I kind of realized this early on, Tim, when I was running into this resistance and I was young, I started this work in my 20s and I came out thinking, everybody's going to love this just as much as I do. And if I can, if I can find a way to communicate it, everybody's going to love it. No, that's not the reaction I got. And I learned that there are plenty of people whose hearts are ready and wide open to receive this. And you spend most of your energies working with them. If you can learn from me here, don't get caught up also in this trap. I, I, I thought maybe it's my problem that people aren't receiving this teaching. And that's a worthy question. And, and certainly we always want to improve our presentations. We want to remove all opportunity for, for people you know, to reject what we're saying because we're being rigid or we're being jerks or we're not being loving in the way we're presenting the teaching. So obviously you got to look at all of that, all of that, all of that. But I was under the illusion for a time that if I just found the perfect way to say it, then everybody would receive it. And it dawned on me once, well, Jesus was the perfect evangelist. He had no sin in his life, which means every time he opened his mouth, he said the right thing and he knew people's hearts perfectly. So he knew how to say it in the right way for the right person, the right situation. He knew all that and they still killed him. So mm-hmm. there's that resistance. There is that resistance in the human being, and not just in an abstract way. It's in me. It's in Wendy. It's in every listener out there. It's in every human being. We resist the gospel. We resist it. We need a lot of prayer as we're going forward and sharing this message with others. We need to be praying for the Lord to direct us, to bring people in our into our lives, and particularly when there's resistance in sort of the administrative aspect of a mm. parish, whether it's your pastor or people who work there who have, you know, a, an influence on types of 
programming and all that kind of stuff, we can just need to really make it a project to be praying for them, not just so we can accomplish but what we want to accomplish, but so the Lord can flow more fully into yes. our parish and be bringing more and more people, you know, to the life-saving truth that the Lord has entrusted to the church yes. as good news. Yes. It's good news. It is good news. And we need to know that to our deepest core. This is good news. And it is hard for some people's ears to hear and recognize that it's good news. But if we know it's good news that we're praying for the Lord's you know, mission to be more fully accomplished in our parish life, we, I would just encourage you to begin by praying for the Lord to bring a few people into your life yeah. with whom you can share and grow together in humility, uh, not feeling like you know you have to be somehow perfect in order to be a witness. A witness to the process is is a beautiful witness. Amen. Um, and just allow that that prayer for your parish for um, and for the Lord to direct your work. And trust that He is working in your heart when you experience rejection or other painful things that none of that is in any way um, going to keep you from growing closer to Him, which is all of our goals. So, it, does, it doesn't have to keep you from it if you're continuing to open that up to the Lord. And I'm talking to myself, too, here. You're talking you know. to me, Wendy. <laughs> talking to everybody. You're talking to me. Something you just <laughs> said there really blessed me. Like something just went in my own heart as you said it. You said, a witness to the process mm. of living this out is a beautiful witness. Mm -hmm. A witness to the process is a beautiful witness. I've beaten myself up on occasion because of my brokenness and this false idea I have that I have to be perfect to, mm -hmm. to be a teacher of the theology of the body. I'm a broken, broken human being. And... I'm not the immaculate conception, mm -hmm. and I have I have made blunders in my life mm -hmm. that me too have pained you, pained my students, and I remember a game changer for me when my spiritual director said, "Christopher, you you have it all wrong. You think a saint is somebody who has his S H I T together, and no, he said a saint is someone who has all of his or her S H I T open." to the merciful love of the Father. Mm. That's, that's the witness to the process, the witness to the journey. And that has become an integral part of the work that we do together in sharing this is, is witnessing to that journey. But just the way you said that really spoke to me. Mm. Thank you, my love. Mm -hmm. I'll say one thing, one final thing, just to, to underscore something you said, Wendy, that Tim, even if you run into the most resistance from your, let's just say your pastor and all the administration of your parish doesn't want anything to do with John Paul II's teaching. As Wendy said, nothing's to prevent you from gathering one or two or three people into some kind of reflection on John Paul's teaching in your own home. Do a study group, do a book club or something on, on one of the books on the theology of the body and start unfolding. And if you get two or three people who really embrace this in a parish, that little spark turns into a fire more quickly than you might expect. Mm. So be not discouraged. It's been a joy to be with you guys as always. We are so pleased to be able to 
have this time with you each week and we would ask you if you are benefiting from our podcast, please hit that little share button and get it out to somebody that you know who needs to hear this podcast. There's probably somebody on your mind or heart right now that you're thinking of. Go ahead and hit that share button. Get it out to that person. And we would also invite you prayerfully to consider becoming a patron of the work of the Theology of the Body Institute. If you go to the show notes there and click the patron link, you can learn more about what that means. We want to enter into an ongoing relationship with you, giving you ongoing formation in the Theology of the Body. You become part of our patron community And we give you guys special attention in terms of ongoing formation and gratitude for your support of this mission. We we really have a mission to reach the ends of the earth with this teaching. As many doors as the Lord opens, we will walk through. But we need those who believe in what we're doing to support us to, to help that be accomplished. So just prayerfully consider that. We would be most grateful. Of course, as always, if you have questions... Uh, You can click that link and submit your questions to us. We love receiving your questions and your comments. They help us tremendously. They encourage us to keep going. Uh, We're so grateful. Hey, it didn't even dawn on me till right now. What? This is our 52nd, I think it's our 52nd episode. That would be a full year. That's a full year we've been doing this. How about that? What a joy it's been to be doing this with you, Wendy. It has. It's been a great gift. It's a great gift. I agree. And a great gift to be with you because you are a gift. Indispensable, irreplaceable, and unrepeatable. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Christopher and Wendy hope the information presented is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted counselors and psychologists in the show notes. Mm